Hebrews. We've been studying Hebrews for quite a few months now. Um, Hebrews is a book with one repetitive theme, that Jesus is greater than. Kind of, you almost can see it. Jesus is greater than right there, right? It has been the primary topic throughout all the previous nine chapters. Like a symphony, the symphonic composer um, of a symphony, the writer of Hebrews keeps repeating the same melodic phrase, Jesus is greater than, Jesus is greater than. And then he drops in new ideas of what Jesus is greater than. Can anybody shout out some of the things like Jesus is greater than? Angels, Moses. The high priest, all priests. Sacrifices. Okay. Okay, the blood of bulls and goats. How about prophets? The rest that Joshua got in his generation, that the rest in Christ is greater. Um, the old covenant is kind of the biggie, right? Which is what we've been talking around, actually. Um, better promises. It's based on Jesus is greater than because of better promises. So we've been going through nine chapters of Jesus is greater than and introducing new ideas and developing them from the Old Testament, trying to bring them into the New Testament. Because there are people who are looking back and saying, you know what, where I come from might be better than what I have now. And so they were struggling with that. And I think in, in context, we can sometimes all struggle with that a little bit because if we come from the world, there were things that the world enticed us with that now we no longer, um, we're no longer part of. And I was thinking about this, and I found an article by a woman. Her name is Melissa Kruger. She writes for um, Together for the Gospel. And um, she updated the Jesus is better than list. And she said, I'll quote her a couple paragraphs, Though the Jews were richly blessed with God's favor through the ministry of the prophets, priests, and kings, it'd be foolish for them to continue living in shadows once the substance of their faith had been fulfilled in the person of Christ. Why continue to live on crumbs when invited to a feast? 2,000 years later, we share in our ancestors' propensity to miss the greater by clutching onto the lesser. Our modern American culture daily entices us with temporal blessings as if they are superior to the riches found in Christ. Perhaps we need a modern-day apologetic, a book of Hebrews, uh, to answer our cultural questions. Is Jesus better than material wealth? Is he better than personal success? Is he better than relationships that we long for? Is he better than our sexual freedom? Is he better than comfort and ease? These are some of the ideas that we can apply into our contemporary life because you're not struggling with, should I... Should I go back to offering a goat? Unless it's your spouse or your parent or something. You know, or, or uh, what, what's this? Goat means something else, right, in our culture? Yeah, greatest of all time. Um, so that's a little different. But chapter 10, uh, Rob started it, I think, last week or maybe the week before, um, is a summary of all these comparisons. So chapters 1 through 9 has been all these comparisons. Chapter 10 is a summary of all those comparisons. And before we move on to the next topic... This chapter is going to summarize all that we went through. The next topic is coming very quickly in, in chapter 11. So, little pop quiz here. Raise hands, pop quiz. How many of you believe that God loves you? How many here believe God loves you? Okay. All right, good. Okay. So, how many of you believe that God really likes you? Like, he really likes you and wants to hang with you? Good, okay. All right, good, good. So why is that, that we all raise our hands? For, I know God loves me. I've been singing it since I've been three years old. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? But when we talk about, does Jesus like me? Does he like me as a person? Does he want to really draw close to me? You know, it's usually guilt and shame that keep us away from him. Thoughts like, I wonder if he is disgusted with my continual failure, my need to control my laziness, my workaholism, my lust, my anger, my contempt for others. All, all things that God wants me to stop doing and stop being that I struggle with. I mean, how can God love me when I struggle to accept myself? Oh, oh yeah, and by the way, God tells me to love my neighbor, but has he ever met them? Has he met the person who lives next to me? Does he know the guy who works in the cubicle across from me? Does he know my spouse? Does he know my kids? And the struggles 
that we have. So let's be honest. Right off the bat, God knows we're all hypocrites. We are total hypocrites. That's, that's part of the gospel, right? But does God really like me? Well, that's what's kind of like the background theme of this text. I mean, so what's the biggest problem in our world today? I know it's the coronavirus, right? If you turn on the radio, or it's your coworker, or it's tax time, or it's daylight savings day, or it could be my spouse or my kids or my neighbor. But at the end of the day, all of our struggles with each other and with God can be summed up with one word. What is that one word that interferes with relationship? Sin. Wow, I thought I'd have to pull that out. That's great. So sin. Sin is your sin is in your life right now. Or maybe it was an hour ago on your way here coming down the expressway. Or maybe you were waiting for the bathroom and you know, somebody's taking too long in there. But but sin is in our lives. But, and if you don't think you're a sinner, God has a passage for you because you're calling him a liar because we all sinned already today. The Apostle John in his first letter said in 1 John 1.8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living by faith. He says anyone who says he's not a sinner is a liar and has not the love of God in him. So your being here makes you a hypocrite in some people's eyes. So just you being here this morning makes you a hypocrite. It's not in my eyes. I don't see you that way. And I guarantee you God doesn't see you that way. But somebody's playing a comparison game in the church, the judgy person among us, or maybe it's an unbeliever who doesn't understand the gospel, or or just those who haven't dove very deep into the gospel. So what can we say? So what can we do? Let's start looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So we have talked a lot about this the past couple months, um, past few weeks even. Blood sacrifice of animals. The work of the priest didn't remove sin. It didn't remove sin. It only covered it up. So every day the priest had to do multiple sacrifices all day long. There was never a chair, like that comes up many times in what we've, we've preached so far. There wasn't a chair in the tabernacle because the priest could never sit down. He was constantly working, constantly offering, constantly sacrificing. There was 24 courses of priests with thousands of priests in each course to make the sacrifices work. Um, but um, it only covered it the expression we have in our day, rosy-colored sunglasses or rosy-colored glasses, you may have heard that. Maybe it's an old phrase, but it probably came from this because God chose not to see their sin by looking at it through the red hue of the animal's blood. So God, so, so sin wasn't removed, but it was covered. And God, when he looked upon Israel, he saw the blood of an innocent lamb or an innocent um, a cattle or goat. Um, but what the priest was doing was just covering. The Hebrew word for that is kafar. Kafar is the word used. The first time it was used was when Noah built the ark, and he kafared it. What does that mean? He covered it with pitch. So he took pitch from trees, and he painted it, and his sons painted it on the ark, and that was a covering. That was the first use of this word. And now it has very, you know, derivations in the text, but basically it means to cover something up. The Old Testament sacrificial system only covered sins. It didn't and was never intended to take away sin. The Old Testament saint was waiting for the Messiah to free them of this guilt and this shame that they had. But year after year, they were reminded of their sin and shame because it was being covered but not removed. That's why David could say in Psalm 32.1, How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. So the idea is that the, that sacrifice um, was, was one to cover up the sin, not necessarily eliminate all of the effects of that sin. That, that was never the intention of the bulls and the goats. So it's kind of like, you know, if you've been around very long in life and you own a house or an, or an apartment, and you're like, say you spilled something on the rug and you can't get it out. I mean, you're, you're like, Kylie, you're scrubbing, 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 and there's a spot in your living room, and you can't get it out, what do you, what do you usually do? 
Put a, put a table over it. Put a couch over it. So the sin's not gone. The stain's not gone, but it's covered. So there's no consequence. People aren't coming in and saying, what's wrong with you people? Are you eating off the floor? What are you, Joey from Friends? You know? But, but the, the truth is, it's just covered. There's still a consequence there. There's still a damaged rug there. There's still damage in them from this, but that covered it. Covering moral failure is very human. Covering moral failure is very human. We all do it. It's our nature. We either bury it down deep or we dismiss it away, but we never let it get hung around our necks, usually. Um, when I was a kid, I loved to tinker. I tinkered all the time, from like the earliest time I can remember. Like, I remember when I was like six or seven years old, my dad bought me like a fuse panel box because I kept blowing the breakers in the house. So then it was the fuses you screwed in. But like, I, my dad had a workbench and he was so disorganized. <clears throat> That's probably why my tools are usually disorganized, Harry will tell you. But, but I would go down there and I'd try to build something. We built some pretty wrong things too, being young men in the city. Um, we like to blow things up when I was little. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was always using my dad's tools. And whenever I broke one, you know, my dad, he was a hard man. Let's put it that way. Everything that you could think of, he was a hard man. So breaking a tool, if I told him I broke a tool, was just as bad as if I didn't tell him I broke a tool. It was like very shade gray difference. So if I broke a tool, I'd just stick it somewhere and cover it with stuff. Or, or better yet, I learned to just throw it away. Like, just throw it in the trash can. <laughs> My dad would be like, where did I put that hacksaw? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so, but see, I wanted to cover my sin. I would either use the tool inappropriately, which I also learned from my father. My father's primary tool was a hammer to get a nut off of, a, you know, something. He constantly, constantly used the most inappropriate tools. And he taught me a, a certain language to go along with the use of those tools when I was young. Um, certain vernacular. But, but, see, I, I needed to cover it because I, I feared the consequences. And so throwing it away was the easy thing to do. So God gave man, though, a legitimate way to cover sin in the Levitical sacrifices and the Day of Atonement. But even that eventually got messed up. So God's created a system that Israel could keep right with God covenantally, not necessarily individually, but covenantally, through the sacrifices of, of sheep and of bulls and of goats, and also on the Day of Atonement, they took two goats. One they placed all, placed all their sin on, and the other one they sent off to Azazel. Don't ask me who Azazel is. I don't know. But it says in the text he was sent off into the wilderness. But the idea was that the sin was placed on that goat, and he just went away, and he took the sin out of the camp. But it was a covering. It allowed them to be in a relationship with God. But even this got messed up, because in Isaiah chapter 1, it's a letter of condemnation to all those living in Judah and administering this old covenant. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The multitude of, their, of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of fat and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling in my courts? Stop bringing your meaningless offerings to me. Your incense is detestable to me, your new moons, your Sabbath, and your convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed feasts I hate with all of my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing you. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system was how God kept relationship with Israel despite their sinfulness. It was an outward sign, though, of an inward repentance. But eventually, the Jews took that outward symbol and made it the substance of the repentance, not a repentant heart. The Old Testament sacrifice became like a magic talisman, a substitute that released the Jews from their perpetual sinning, but only in their broken minds, not in God's. So all God says, your hands are full of blood. It's like, hey, I feel like going out and doing this wrong thing. Do I have a sheep? Okay, I'll go do it. 
You know, like literally their hearts were like, I can just go sin and offer this thing and then I'll be clean. And that's never what the intention of it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was the heart. It was a broken and contrite heart. And that's why David wrote, um, let's see if I can find it. He wrote in Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. That's the heart of anyone who wants to be right with God, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. It's not an act. It's not a, a symbol. It's, it's a contrite heart. It's the inner person. And David realized that, and he, he actually sang this to the Lord. Also, God makes it clear that works can never take away sin. I mean, the bottom line throughout all of the story of God is works of man cannot take away sin. Human achievement has zero credibility with God. It's always been that way. God is not impressed with the greatest human achievement. One of the greatest kings and builders of all time was Nebuchadnezzar. And he sinned against God. He said, look at this great city that I've built here. And God went and turned him into an animal. And he ate grass for what, seven years, I think, or some certain amount of years, three or seven, I'm not sure. They both are numbers that interplay there. But he literally was like a wild animal because of his pride and his arrogance. There's nothing we can build, there's nothing we can do that's going to impress God except a contrite heart, a faithful heart to him. You can't neutralize disobedience to God with good works. Billions of people think so in this world, though. There's billions of people who think that good works can neutralize um, bad works to God. Some even consider themselves evangelicals. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some evangelicals even put that out there, but God says no. Karma is for pagans, not for Christians. Karma is a pagan idea. It's not a Christian idea that you're going to get paid back by God for what you've done. Somebody's going to pay it, but we'll keep going. First chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Completely done and finished. Christ offered himself up as the perfect, sinless sacrifice. The man-God, the united nature between man and God, changed the quality of the sacrifice. That's why we say Jesus is better than the sacrifices of bulls and goats. So when Christ offers himself, it was God himself, inserting himself, his deity, into our world, in our broken image, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So God's plan was to beat sin, Satan, and death from the inside. That was God's plan. I'm going to go inside and beat sin, sin, Satan, and death and break the curse of Adam, which he brought into God's sinless creation. That's why a 30-year-old Jesus was baptized by John, his cousin, in the Jordan at the beginning of his gospel ministry. His baptism entered into the group of Jews who were seeking repentance and forgiveness of sins from God. They were not like the imposters from the temple or from the synagogue. That's not because he needed to be baptized into that, but he wanted to be joined to that. He didn't need to be forgiven when John baptized him, which was why everyone else was coming in, but he wanted to be identified with those who would be brokenhearted towards God. So he was brought into the group. He was identified with those who loved God. Jesus did this by first always obeying the Father's will and keeping the old covenant law perfectly. So Jesus did this, how he was obedient, how he ministered, by obeying the Father's will and keeping the old covenant law perfectly. He lived the life that we are supposed to live and died a brutal death that we all deserve to experience. And he did this as our substitute. So God... An infinite, sinless being, perfect, joined himself to broken humanity. Humanity which was the crown of his creation, but had fallen and was now quagmired in sin. He was crucified, died, and buried. The grave could not hold him because he was sinless and perfect in death. 
He appeased the curse of mankind, and after three days, his previously twisted, broken, beaten body rose from the grave glorified. Amen. But the quality of this sacrifice, this sinless, perfect sacrifice, full of death-robbing power, is sufficient for, for more than sufficient enough to raise you and I from death and even transform us today in life. So after this miraculous cosmos-changing event, Jesus then sat down and rested from the work of the sacrifice. That's, this is all verse 12, which we covered in a previous chapter. But this is, again, I said chapter 10 is a summary of everything else. So why do you and I decide to sit in our sin when such a Savior has greatly and already forgiven you and cleansed you of all unrighteousness? Jesus hasn't just covered your sin. He has removed it from you. As far as from the east is from the west is what the psalmist says. So let me ask you, why do we sit in our sin? Why do we refuse to repent? Why do we struggle to follow God and to listen to him and then to, to call upon his name? Why? That's a real question. Pride. Uh, I think that's exactly. That's one of the three words I have. Fear. I don't have that, but that's good. Fear. Okay. We're deceived. Yeah. Everybody's doing it, right? I mean, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. What do you mean? I'd use the word unpacked when my son would throw something at me. So what do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. We're bombarded every day by messages from the world that we're wrong. God's wrong. And the, the, the group think is right. Crowd mentality. Crowdsourcing. That's that's where you want to be, right? If the crowd says one thing, it must be right. So I had also pride and arrogance. I'm not sure exactly what the difference is between that, but the, people use them always like, it's pride and arrogance, right? So maybe if arrogance means I think I'm better than that, maybe? Is that, I don't know. Then I also had on there ignorance. Sometimes we're ignorant of the opportunity to be cleansed, of the opportunity to live free from that. So verse 13, it starts out in 12. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We need to look at the source of this quote, which I think Emily read this morning. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So that's a kind of an abbreviation of the passage that Emmy wrote that the writer of Hebrews put in the text. The author, King David, and the the author is King David, and the subject is placing all the enemies under the feet of the Son of God, Jesus. Because like we can look at it and say, well, if this is true, then why do we see sin? And why do we see lawlessness? And why do we see like, people like, totally opposed to God out there? Well, first of all, Jesus accomplished this at the cross and the resurrection initially. So he initially accomplished it. Hebrews 2.14 says, Christ dealt a destructive blow to Satan. Colossians 2, uh, 14 and 15. It says that Jesus triumphed over all the fallen angels. Colossians 2, 15 also says he disarmed and discredited all rulers and authorities from all time, from all time who have opposed God. So every ruler and authority that opposed God in all time, Christ has reigned victorious and has discredited them. But how is Jesus doing that now? Like if, if Jesus is... Supremely, he said it. Remember, I was talking about. He said, "All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and earth." How and why can we have the lawlessness now? And what is his tool? Um, what, what is his way of ruling and reigning now? So, verse two says, "The scepter of Zion is how he rules." I believe he's saying here in this text that the scepter of Zion is the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the power that is spreading beginning in Jerusalem and spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth. So where is, when, when, when the psalmist said this, or when Jesus actually said this in Matthew 28 and other places, where was the uttermost parts of the earth to Jesus? What? Europe? Philly? <laughs> right? So the, the gospel has gone to the uttermost. It's not completely gone to every person and every language. And every, but it has gone 
pretty far from tribal people in Israel to North America, right? I mean, that's a long way for the gospel to go on. So, so when it says that the church will affect the uttermost parts of the earth, the church is affecting here. We are part of that. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. The armor to stand against the power and principalities, the present darkness and the devil. The, ar the, the, the armor of faith. Or the, the, the armor in Ephesians 6. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So this goes on in the midst of God's enemies. So if, the, if Jesus settled all these things at the cross and took all power and authority from principalities and rulers, from demons, from Satan, and even death itself, and now he sends the church out to be that light in the darkness, that we are his scepter, moving from Zion to the uttermost parts of the earth, why hasn't he brought all things to a close? Why doesn't he just take authority? Don't you ever wonder that? Don't you ever have like a really hard day or a really hard week or a really hard life or know somebody who has and said, even now come, Lord Jesus. Like, could you, could you come up, show up before tomorrow? I mean, I think we've all had that thought once or twice, but why doesn't he? Why doesn't he put you out of your misery or me out of my misery and bring us into glory? I mean, why? Anybody? Okay. Suffering perfects us, doesn't it? You learn so much more in suffering than you do in pleasure. It's true. Only an old guy knows that. <laughs> I can say that. Buster's a couple years older than me. It's not me. Um, that is true. That is true. Any other reasons? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think what you might be saying is like Second Peter two nine. Somebody, somebody want to look that up for me? I didn't highlight that. Second Peter two nine. Anybody, can anybody read that? Or I'll read it if I get there first. But, uh, Second Peter two nine, or First Peter. I got the wrong quote in here. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, yeah go ahead, louder, Kalia. You can do King James. Well, promises. Right, right. The longer he waits, the more people have the opportunity, the more that you and I have the opportunity to fulfill the mission of the church, to be that scepter of power in the hands of Christ. So, thank you. That was a really good passage. Matter of fact, I'm listening to it and say, well, that's a pretty good one, too. But that's not the one I was, I don't know, I, I, First Peter, Second Peter. Um, so, that's one good reason the devil wants to discourage you and me. The devil wants to discourage you and I because God wants you to live in light of the gospel. He's using you and me to extend his kingdom power. You are a kingdom citizen. There, Jesus said, my kingdom's not here. You can't see it here. But it is here in us. We are part of the kingdom. We are the ruled of the kingdom. And when we are obedient to our king, we do things like forgive and love and share what God's done in our lives. Those are some of the values of the kingdom. So verse 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Single offering. I've heard Rob say this a couple times, so I'll throw it out there. You ought to know it by now. What does the perfect tense mean in a verb? <laughs> it's been out here like three times already. I've not fished for it. What's that? Yeah, it's, it's something that happened in the past that has continuing effects into the future. So this idea that this single offering, this this perfect tense, this verb is uh, prospera, which means a past action that has continuing results. One unique life live obediently to the Father perfectly. That was what Christ's offering was. It wasn't just his death on the cross. It was his obedient life to the Father. All things he did according to his Father's will. Jesus has, perf 
Jesus has per, was perfected and has perfected 2,000 years ago all those who enter in a relationship with him throughout all time, from creation to recreation. So from creation to recreation in the fall, Jesus has, through his obedient life, death on a cross and resurrection, has perfected those who are being sanctified. How? Well, you're going to have to hang on for chapter 11, but the sneak peek is by faith, right? By faith. Another passage in the New Testament talks about this. So what we're saying is that Jesus perfected all the people who are going to be coming to faith when he died on the cross and rose again. So you're already perfect. Did you know that? You've already been perfected. But you're still working through it, right? So another passage in the New Testament helps us to clear this up a little bit. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 tells us, that we're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So, so the blessings we get from Jesus now, he established when he was obediently lived a sinless life and died obediently on a cross and was raised from the dead. So there's this, it's, it's outside of my ability to even get in my head, but in eternity, in, in, in infinity, that Christ's sacrifice already has perfected you and me and, and God sees us that way, but yet we're still here. And we're still toiling, and we're still struggling, and we're still suffering. So those, he continues, he says, for those who are being sanctified or being made holy. So he's saying there's a particular group being made holy, which God sees only as holy in eternity. God sees us in eternity and sees us holy, but we are being made holy now. Those who join to Christ through faith. These are being made holy through the action of the Holy Spirit in two ways. He does this when he seals us as God's proper family. So God, the Holy Spirit comes into us when we have true faith in Christ. He comes into us and seals us as his. It's a deposit towards an eternal thing. But that God the Father sees us as done. And then he sanctifies us as he transforms us by convicting of sin and bringing to repentance. So the Holy Spirit works in two ways. He, he, he basically bought the house, but then he's also making payments at the same time by, by leading us along. Um, so let me explain. Maybe this will help a little bit. So when you think of your relationship with God, when you think of God's view of our relationship, there is an eternal union, which is completely unbreakable. We are, when we come to Christ, when we have faith, when he, the Holy Spirit comes in and seals us, there is an eternal union that's unbreakable. But there's also an experiential communion. So there's an eternal union that nothing we do can affect, but there's also an experiential communion, meaning my obedience, my faithfulness, my disobedience affects my relationship with God and Christ. I can enjoy his relationship and be in peace based upon obedience, or I can be Full of guilt, terrified, and worried about my relationship because I have been disobedient. Disobedience completely screws this thing up. So, so that's the idea here. You're eternally secure, but you're also being transformed. And, you, and we as people feel close to God or terrified by God based upon our obedience, based upon our willingness to do what the Spirit tells us to do. So this completely wipes away universalism, like uh, the book um, Love Wins by Rod Bell. It's not really popular now, but we saw it creep up in Korea recently. We all jumped on some of our friends in Korea because they're all reading Love Wins, and we're like, what? That was like 10 years ago here, and it was a disaster. So this guy, Rod Bell, said that everybody's going to heaven. <laughs> it's universalism, that God died for the whole world is what the Bible says. But here you see, he says he dies for those who are being sanctified. It means you have to have the Holy Spirit. It means you have to have faith. Those are important things to be part of God's family. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
So verses 15 and 16, let's keep moving here. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now I preached an entire message from Hebrews 8 based on Jeremiah 31 where this verse comes from, so I'm not going to do that now. But I could, it's, it's really right here. But this morning I turned to my notes and I'm like, wow, I'm in trouble, I don't remember this at all. And I'm like, oh wait, I preached that last month. <laughs> it was funny, uh, to me, anyway. Um, so I preached the entire message, so, so I'll avoid it. But this verse is a summary of Jeremiah 31, verse 10. The promise of a new covenant was proclaimed by the prophet Jeremiah 2,600 years ago, and about 600 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's not new to the Jews. It, it's, it's a, first, a first century Jew would have known, that, who knew his Bible, which most of them did, would have known this was predicted 600 years ago. So it's not new to first century Jews. This new covenant we're talking about, it wouldn't like come up with Jesus. Jesus is not, Jesus is the author, like the doer of the new covenant. But Jeremiah wrote about it 600 years before Jesus was born and put it in scripture and they all had that. But it's a rival as fulfilled prophecy. That was new. Because they see, they, like us sometimes, they saw that, well, I see God fulfilling it the way I think he should be fulfilling it. It's like end time events, like, being a pastor and being in several circles, I've been on a couple of ordination boards uh, of ordaining men to ministry, and there's always one guy there who's like, you need to decide exactly how Jesus is coming back and stick to it and never change. Like, is, he, is it pre-wrath? Is it rapture? Is it, is it you know, amillennialism or post-millennialism? Yeah, all these theological words. And it's like, I always, I'm the guy on the council saying, you know, you sound stupid because nobody knows. None of us are going to be like, Jesus, you can't come back that way because I know you're coming back this way. So go, go back. You know, it's like, it's, it's great to believe something that is future that we don't quite have all the details on. But that's one of those things that the Jews should have known from Jeremiah's uh, prophecy that Jesus was coming and that he was going to fulfill this. And Jesus said, I am this fulfillment. So God's promise, instead of having his code of laws written in a book or written on a wall or mounted in a picture frame above your fireplace, instead of having the, his word there, he decided that the Holy Spirit would write it on our hearts. So our spiritual conscience, what, what's good and what's bad, would be rewritten and rebooted by God, kind of. Like I put it in computer terms, so... You write code, and you boot a system, and it operates according to that code. Well, the Holy Spirit was coming into people, rewriting the code and rebooting you, so that you would now have a different code. And I know that's true. Why? Because when I was 20 years old, I went to one of the most liberal universities. It was not an Ivy League university, so they get way worse than I went to. I believed that abortion was 100% okay. Uh, every kind of sexual promiscuity was 100% okay. I advocated for environmental causes. I jumped power plant fences at nuclear power plants. I was the biggest liberal you could possibly be in like 1982 or 83. And then Jesus came into my life and everything changed. And my friends would be like, what's wrong with you? Like, like you're so different. And they'd be like, oh, you just changed your mind. I'm like, actually, I didn't change my mind. I still think those things are okay, kind of, in part. But God says in his word... It's not okay. This is what I live by now. And they're like, oh, geez, you know, a 2,000-year-old book. Like, what's wrong with you? But God came into my heart and life and completely just wiped that away. And, and, and I come from a very liberal family where we had Pope, the Pope and John F. Kennedy's picture up in our living room. You know, that's the kind of family I came from. So. But that all changed. It all changed when Jesus came into my heart and life. So... So there's a spiritual conscience that change, but also um, sin will bring sorrow and loss. So sin will also bring sorrow and loss and erode, bless you, our experiential communion with Christ in this life. So that's what the, the Holy Spirit would write his law in our heart. He would change our values, and now he would bring sorrow and loss when we didn't live and obey Jesus. Verse 17 then says, 
that I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. This is kind of where we got started today. So that's taken from Jeremiah 31, 34. Guilt. Guilt. The feeling in your heart and life that, that you have done something to hurt another person, that damaged another person. Guilt is a crippling emotion for anyone whether you're in Christ or not, whether you're filled with faith or faithless, we are all in the same boat when it comes to guilt. Guilt is a slow and steady suffocation of the human soul. Guilt will suffocate you over time. The difference is, those outside the faith spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to convince themselves and the world that they are not guilty. Or it's not their fault even if they are guilty. It's somebody else's fault that this has happened. Those inside the gospel family of God know that we are all guilty. So for we in Christ, the problem is that we feel guilty and look, and look to excuse it away, although sometimes we do that. It's that we are guilty and we know it. If you are a child of God, you know you are guilty. You know you are a failure. You know that you can't live this life without him, not just once 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 5 years ago, but every day, every day we fail. I fail as a dad. I fail as a husband. I fail as a son. I even fail as a pastor. If I think that my ability to be what God wants me to be comes from in here, it comes from out there, it comes from the Holy Spirit, it comes from Christ, it comes from the writings of God, that is where I learn to live that is where I believe is true. And when I compare myself to the mirror of the, of the word, I don't measure up. I don't measure up as a dad. I don't measure up as a husband. I don't measure up as a friend. I don't measure up as a pastor. Sorry. But that's the gospel, right? Perfectionism is all the rage in our day. We suffer globally under this tyranny of the expert and the lettered men and women of our world. Grace has almost become a quaint notion, even in the church. Grace has been dismissed by our society and almost by the church. If you make a mistake, we'll move on to the next guru, or the next guru, and the next, and the next, and the next, because you can't make a mistake in our society without being completely discredited anymore. I was listening to, this is totally off cusp, Hope I don't take too much time with this, but they're talking about the problem with the coronavirus is that it's going to take a lot of, like, trial and error. Who was it, Edison or Einstein who said, like, I, I figured it out by making 695 mistakes or something like that. That's how, like, our world came to be where we are. Somebody knows that quote. Come on. Who's the quote? You're going to know quote. Well, you said it over time. Yeah. Yeah. That should be a movie, right? Edison versus Tesla. Like, uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Um, Anyway, yeah, so we, we, came, we came by trial and error. People weren't, like, crucified for making a mistake. Like, when we've, most of the medical miracles, like penicillin and antibiotics and all the things we have today were mistakes that somebody made that said, oh, look what this could do. You know, but we live in a society now that you make a mistake. You're done. Move on to the next guy. You lost all credibility. Look, that's, the, the Bible's full of grace. Grace is forgiveness. Grace is allowing people to fail and loving them despite that because God loves them and God is changing them. So we need to, to operate and learn more about grace. So what the Old Testament saint longed for, was hungry for, was the removal of guilt completely. Not just its annual covering and then a goat being forced out of the camp. That was temporary and insufficient because this passage even says the priest kept doing it over and over and over again. It was a repetitive thing that reminded them of their failure. It never quite removed the guilt and it didn't give them true peace, but it gave them the ability to live as a covenant people. 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and me. When they spoke of things that have been told, 
by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even the angels long to look into these things. The Old Testament saint was desperate to let the guilt go, but they had to live under it. I mean, look, read the Psalms. David is full of guilt, but is thankful that God can forgive him. And at the end of the day, it's covered. It's covered, but it wasn't removed. You and I have had that access, though. We are experiencing the glories that the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament promise, prophets longed for and didn't receive in their time. So why do we stay mired in our sin when Jesus has released us from that sin and separated it as far as the east is from the west? Verse 18, our last verse. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The these things, for, the these forgiven, are the forgiven things mentioned here. They're all the sins you have committed, are committing, and will commit. That should be to us joy, not license. God didn't die so that we could be sinners. God died so that we could have our sin forgiven. So it's for the joy we receive in forgiveness, not license to sin. It is for daily and regular cleansing of our guilt and not an excuse to live in sin. It is good news that God likes you, that God wants to be with you, that he wants to walk with you. And that failure that you experienced last night, or that failure you experienced last week, or last year, or go back as far as necessary, that that thing does not keep God from you, but it keeps you from God. But you need to release that. You need to release that to him. You need to believe that he can take that sin away and that you can feel guilt no more. Okay, so um, I, wrote, I, I spoke my conclusion at the beginning, so I don't have a conclusion, but I have something to share. So that's how we'll conclude. So I think I've shared this before from the front more than once. Um, God often works things out in my heart and life when I'm sleeping. Like, dream, like, when I'm preaching the word, like, connections will come, like, in the night. Like, I'll wake up, I'll be like, wow, I didn't even think of that. I'll have to write, I have a little tablet next to my bed. Last night, I went to sleep, and I, I woke up, and I said, nothing happened. Of course, it's daylight savings time. I think maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't work in five and a half hours of sleep. But we got back from Kylio's party, and it's like, it's 11 o'clock. No, it's 12 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, Anthony's party, sorry. It's always a party around you, brother. So, all right, anyway, um, Anthony's birthday. So, I took my normal thing, you know, I take a shower, and I go down, and I start praying for the, everybody in the church, and praying about the message, and, and I said, God, why didn't you give me any insight last night? Like, I, mean, I usually get something. And, he, and, he, and he, he said, I did give you insight. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> And he, and he recall, I brought a dream to my mind last night. And I shared it with Kyleo this morning because I said, Kyleo, he, he's like, you know, he's a very prophetic guy, if you know Kyleo. Um, and I said, Kyleo, I had this dream. And I'm like, I want to share it, but I think, I think it might be the wrong thing to do. And he's like, if the Holy Spirit gave it to you, brother, you need to deliver it. You know, <laughs> wrap it up in a bow and bring it out out. <laughs> but anyway, so I told him what the dream was and tried to figure out an interpretation because I didn't have an interpretation. But I had this weird dream last night that I was, on this team of people trying to solve this problem. I don't know what the problem was. And I don't know, like, but it was, it was very complicated. It was very high tech. And we had this, like, like, meeting outside of the facility that we were working in. And come to find out, a bunch of the people I was working with were dead. Like, literally, they were moving around, walking around, talking, and working on the project, but they were literally dead. Like, they were gone, but I didn't know it. And the, my coworkers didn't know it. And it was so weird to me. Like, I, and it, that was my dream. Like, and it, you know how dreams are? It's like, this is weird, but it's my dream, so it's okay. So, so all these dead people are working on this incredible project with me, trying to get this result done. And I said, I, I don't have an interpretation for that. So we batted it around this morning. And the Lord laid on my heart that, you know, some of us in the church, I was raised a different faith. Christian, but not the gospel-centered Christianity. And 
because of that, like my life went way sideways <laughs> into everything possible that you could do wrong. Um, and then I got money because I was corporate and I was single. So then it got even worse because I had money now to fuel that sinful lifestyle. And so when I became a Christian, I remember it. I was on the, I mean, I, I tried to embrace the gospel a couple times. I didn't really understand it. But one day I was driving on the Tri-State Expressway, which is Chicago, one of Chicago's, like 294, I think it is. And the Lord just, like, struck my heart. And I started crying. I started, I was so, you know, like, terrified of the Lord and of what was going on that I just pulled over it on the cloverleaf between there and somewhere else. And I just, like, I was a blothering idiot. And I, I finally gave my heart to God there, fully, completely. It was drained, you know, completely drained. I floated for a couple weeks until I realized I was still a sinner. And then, uh, so that was my salvation experience. I always struggle with folks who come from Christian families and homes. And a lot of them that I've met in my life, and no one here, but I think it may have something to do with my dream. It's like they were raised and they made a decision when they were four years old, like, to, to give their life to Christ because a Sunday school teacher or, or a parent or something was, you know, was asking them for that. And so they, children like to please. And so sometimes there are people, and I've, I've actually led people to the Lord who that happened to, they base their faith on a decision they made when they were six years old. But I base my faith on a decision I made this morning. Like, I walk with God intentionally every day. I'm not getting resaved. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is if you don't have the Holy Spirit convicting you on the regular of your sin and telling you by 10 o'clock in the morning that you are a failure and you need Jesus, then, then maybe, maybe you, you did something really nice for your parent or your Sunday school teacher or your brother or your friend, but you didn't really come to Christ. And that you may, may be among us, you know, knowing the Bible and knowing what you're supposed to do and knowing how you're supposed to live, but you haven't been made alive in Christ. And so that's the best guess that we kind of came up. You may have a different interpretation. Please come to me after the service and give me your interpretation. But, but if that's you, I mean, the Holy Spirit entered in to take away the guilt. So if you're riddled with guilt that you could never get rid of, or God doesn't even tell you when you do things wrong that it's wrong, then, then the Apostle John says, check yourself. Check, you don't want to miss it. And so that's my conclusion is just the story is about my dream and about how we need to know, we need to hold on to such a great salvation in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.